This is Bethany Hughes for the National Trust. Walking across Hampstead Heath couldn't feel like a more solidly, nostalgically British pursuit. There are dog walkers and kids pond dipping, a spreading oak tree. But as I'm approaching one of the elegant streets that rim the heath, all red brick and shiny doorknobs, there's a bit of a surprise. Because over there, at number two Willow Road, is a decidedly modernist interloper. Built between 1937 and 1939 by the Hungarian architect Erno Goldfinger, what I can see now as a long, lean, comparatively stark block was a family home, but much more besides. Two Willow Road is a manifesto of Erno Goldfinger's modernist ideals. A brave, bolshy statement that brought Bauhaus to Britain and that in many ways tested our nation's ability to live with different kinds of neighbours. Erno Goldfinger was born in Budapest in 1902 to a Jewish family. He lived in Transylvania and studied in Vienna and Switzerland before moving to Paris in the 1920s, where he trained as an architect at the prestigious École des Beaux-Arts. In Paris, he fell in love with an English girl, Ursula Blackwell of the Cross and Blackwell soup fame. The couple moved to London to raise a family, and Erno Goldfinger immediately started to plan to build their ideal family home in Willow Road. Goldfinger considered Britain a conservative country, whose ideas and architecture was ready to be shaken up. It was only later that he learned that the British didn't quite share his enthusiasm for the modernism pioneered in early 20th century Europe by Le Corbusier and his contemporaries. So now what I'm looking at close up, in some ways it echoes the more typical London homes all around here. Uh, the structure itself is red brick, they're very generous windows, there are hedges, you know, there's an obvious delight in the London garden. But when Two Willow Road was built in 1938, there was an outcry. The Hampstead Preservation Society said it would irretrievably damage the atmosphere of one of the most beautiful roads in Hampstead. Well, John Escombe, who's an expert on Two Willow Road, is waiting for me at the front door to illuminate the house's life story and its secrets. Hello, John. Hello there, Bethany. Hi. Very nice to see you. And you. Now, I'm right in thinking, aren't I, that originally there were some Georgian cottages on this site that were knocked down to make way for this? There were two shacks, I would describe them as, but these were suddenly celebrated by all the NIMBYs in this area and a great campaign was started to save them, particularly by the local MP. Now, eventually, Goldfinger said, we'll tone down the block of flats and we'll create a terrace of three, and that's exactly what we have today. So what makes this modernist? The house sits on piloti, meaning stilts. You can see four of them across the front here, and that's the main support for the house. And it's based loosely on Adolf Loos, who was an architect from Czechoslovakia, who believed in the Raum plan, the open plan, where you have no supporting walls internally. So it's entirely flexible. And that's what Goldfinger was very excited about. And that's what you've got here, in essence. So it's very classically modernist. Let's go inside. Okay. Oh, look at this. 
It's fantastic. It smells of heritage, and what I can see, it's actually quite small, isn't it? It's pretty compact, but there's modern art on the walls, there's rubber on the floor, there's a beautiful kind of... It's like a window, really, either side of the front door, with glass, with these objets d'art framed as silhouettes. It's a statement hallway, isn't it? It is a statement hallway, but it's quite modest, because the idea was that when you came in, you should be encouraged as quickly as possible to go up the stairs and into the main body of the house. I'll tell you what strikes me is the staircase. I mean, that's what you see as you come in. It's a spiral, semi-spiral staircase, but it's not cast iron, as you might expect. There aren't wooden banisters. It's very elegantly curves upstairs. It sort of entices you up, and the what would have been banisters are actually... That, that's rope, isn't it, there? Indeed. That staircase actually is a feat of engineering in its own right because it's basically concrete slabs cantilevering off a tube... And Ove Arup, who were the consultants on it, were at first convinced that it wasn't going to work, that it was going to defy the laws of physics and that that tube would uh, collapse. But it worked, and it is a very graceful and elegant feature of this house. Well, almost 90 years on, let's test the engineering and go upstairs. Beautiful red paint, kind of cherry red. Indeed. So we're now in the dining room. Very elegant space, this. And much bigger. Goldfinger was very impressed with Georgian London when he came here in the 1930s. And what we actually have at Willow Road is what he called a modern interpretation of a Georgian house. And one of the elements, of course, of Georgian housing is that you have a very modest entrance as we came through and you live on the first floor, the Piano Nobile. The house opens up at this point, so it's a grander space. And here we are in the dining room. Did the Goldfingers also have a kind of rather Georgian attitude to pleasure? Because because they were great party makers, weren't they? They were big party people, and it was designed with parties in mind. And the flexible space here first makes itself evident. You can close these two panels, which we have to our right as you come in off the stairs, and create a very intimate space if you want, if you want just a few people around the dinner table. Or you can fold these right the way back and you can connect the sitting room, the artist studio and the dining room together to make one very big party space. And that's very exciting. It changes the whole atmosphere here on this first floor. And we're used to this kind of domestic space now. I mean, this was truly radical. So how did the neighbours react? Well, they were pretty horrified. They initially thought it was going to be entirely in concrete. Uh, and in fact, when you come to the front of the house, there's quite a lot of brick, a lot of glass, which I think also frightened a lot of people because that was considered slightly alien and slightly foreign. But when people saw its classical dimensions and its use of those materials, brick and concrete, in a relatively traditional form, they were more relaxed. What strikes me, I've got to say, as you walk through the house, are the number of paintings that there are everywhere. It feels like a kind of temple to modern art in some ways. Indeed so. Uh, And it is, in many respects. It's an amazing collection which came complete to the National Trust when it opened. So if we walk right now to the end of the dining room and approach Ursula's artist studio. On our right, on one of the wood panels, we see this rather wonderful picture by Amade aux enfants, Les Armands, the lovers from 1930. It's a rather sensual picture of two people in a passionate embrace. 
Amade Aux Enfants was a surrealist artist in Paris, working in the 1920s. And this was a significant meeting point, really, for the Goldfingers. Ursula and Erno met in Paris, and Erno encouraged Ursula to train under Amade Aux Enfants as a surrealist. And that's really where their whole coming together happened, intellectually, architecturally, and I think this picture really symbolises that period in their life. And who knows, that could even be Erno and Ursula in an embrace. Beautiful, very tender. It's interesting, actually, because when your eyes are just in here, you do see that there is art everywhere, and it's very human. There's this kind of emphasis on the human body and on relations. Do we know if the artists themselves came here as well as this art? They did indeed. Henry Moore, the sculptor, was living up the road. Ben Nicholson was a local. So people were coming and going all the time. They were very friendly with Roland Penrose. There's a wonderful Roland Penrose collage behind us. They were well connected with the Delaunays, Robert and Sonia Delaunay, who painted these wonderful images of Paris in the 1920s, 30s. So we've been talking about the European connections in art, there's also another rather lovely personal European connection in Erno's office. Lovely. Lead the way. So, we've come into another smaller room again, absolutely crammed with files and books and stamps and kind of robust workaday metallic grey filing cabinets. So this is where he sat and designed, is it? He did. But what's very exciting and why I've brought you in here is a rather wonderful grey, low-profile top hat. And that is Auguste Perret's hat. The significance of that man cannot be emphasised enough, shall we say, because Perret was Goldfinger's mentor. When he was studying at the École des Beaux-Arts as an architect, initially Goldfinger had approached Corbusier, the man himself, but Corbusier said, I don't teach, and he recommended Perret, who had taught him. And this hat somehow sums up everything about Perret, conventional on the outside, but deeply unconventional in terms of ideas. And he believed in poured, reinforced concrete, a béton brut, from which the term brutalism is derived. It's great, isn't it? Because this Perret hat, it, it sits between two very significant objects. So on one side, there are stones and pebbles. And that, that's a real trope, isn't it, of the surrealists, you know, honouring and worshipping almost these kind of found objects. But then on its left hand side, there is Ian Fleming's Goldfinger. So is it true, John? Was it named for this Erno Goldfinger? It's a very murky story. The rumour has it that uh, Ian Fleming didn't like the proposal for Two Willow Road and therefore named Goldfinger, the novel, after Erno Goldfinger. Who knows? They didn't exactly get on, put it that way. And what I get the sense of here actually is the internationalism of the place. So there's a little box file that says Athens, Egypt, Palestine, Turkey, 1927. There are postcards on the desk from all over the world. There are guidebooks in the bookshelf behind me. It's a kind of exciting room to be in, isn't it? You almost feel like it's this mixing pot of ideas and you don't know then what's going to spin out from within here. Absolutely. And his travel books, which are on your right as you come into the study, say it all 
all, really. A guide to Czechoslovakia, your guide to Malta. They were travelling quite a lot. It's also very busy, because I think when we say the word modernism, we think of a kind of empty white box, and that is absolutely not what's going on here. Indeed so, and Goldfinger was particularly anti the white box. He wanted to be true and honest in his architecture. He didn't believe in constructing a building conventionally and then smearing it in white cement and calling it modernism. No, he wanted to show exactly the elements of the house. And I think internally that happens here too. He hasn't packaged things away in a very sleek, plywood-covered modernism, hiding everything. He's left everything on show, which is part of the architecture too. The house was a focus for the Goldfinger's new life in England, and it brought together domestic and artistic vision under one roof. Charlotte Perriand was a friend of the Goldfinger's, a furniture designer who worked with Le Corbusier. For her, Two Willow Road encapsulated the forward-looking, open-door spirit of the age. She wrote, It is an emotional experience staying there, surrounded by friendship and by objects, books and pictures, which recall the spirit of that unique epoch, for it was the birthplace of modern times. But when the house was finished in the summer of 1939, the geopolitical storm clouds gathering on the continent meant that this unique period, with all its optimism and energy, was about to be sorely challenged. I'm in Anna Goldfinger's bedroom here at number two Willow Road with Goldfinger's biographer, the philosopher and writer Nigel Warburton. Nigel, what impact did the Second World War have on, on his life, on his work and on his ideas? Well, to begin with, he entered Willow Road just about the same time Hitler entered Poland. So it was a very terrible time in European history. And obviously in Hitler's eyes, the family were Jewish and there was a deep, genuine fear of invasion. He knew what the consequences might be. Terrible, terrible times to live through. And for Erno, from the point of view of the British government, he was an enemy alien and could have been rounded up and interned. And that's certainly what happened to many people in Hampstead. There are stories of police going into Hampstead Library and talking to people if they had a German accent, if they're from Vienna or whatever. They might be Jewish emigres, but they would possibly end up on the Isle of Man or possibly much further afield. So there was a real risk of being interned. Classified as an enemy alien, Anno couldn't build new houses during the war, and so he found other ways to occupy himself and to contribute to the war effort. His Marxist ideals gave him a particular sympathy for the Russian people, who were suffering the full force of the Nazi machine. Tales of unprecedented barbarity had started to emerge from Russia, so the Goldfingers decided to do their bit. In the oak-panelled living room here at number two Willow Road, I'm looking at a gorgeous little sculpture by Henry Moore. Um, It's made of elm and string, and it dates from 1938. Um, Henry Moore also lived in Hampstead in the 30s. This little piece formed part of an exhibition held here by the Goldfingers in 1942, specifically to support the Aid to Russia Fund. The Goldfingers showed nearly 70 works. There were drawings, prints, paintings and sculptures by most of the leading European artists of the day, a number of whom were personal friends by this point. You can just imagine the buzz, the excitement. 
And of course, the curtain twitching that went on from some of Erno and Ursula's more disapproving neighbours. This was the first time in London that modern painting was shown in a modernist house and it drew huge attention in the press. It got over 100 people coming every day for a couple of weeks and they did raise £250 as well, which was a huge sum of money at the time. And it's also very potent, isn't it? Because some of those artists that are being displayed here in Nazi Germany, they would be described as degenerates at this time. Yes, I don't think that was necessarily deliberate. It's just that Erno and and Ursula mixed with a kind of artist, loved the kind of artist that the Nazis hated. After the war, Erno Goldfinger played a critical part in the post-war renovation of bomb-damaged London. He viewed the devastating effects of conflict as an opportunity for planners and architects to reconstruct a new and a better organised city, to transform communities through the rational application of technology and social reform. Well, this is the nursery, and it's one of the brightest, lightest rooms in the house. Back into Willow Road... John Escombe showed me how Erno's plans for social housing played out in the family home when his daughter Liz became involved. It's pretty stark feeling for a nursery, bit spartan. And also the object that kind of dominates this rather stark room, is this, um, is it a doll's house? Yes, indeed. We are looking at Liz Goldfinger's doll's house, which really was an excuse for Erno to create a, a vision for another house because it's basically one floor as if we were looking at a floor plan. And he rather imposed this on Liz. Large expanses of glass, clear story windows, flexible interior spaces, Erno's vision for the future. Not what Liz Goldfinger wanted at all. It just sort of smacks of improvement. It's that thing that, as parents, we always do, that we shove these improving toys at our children. Absolutely. He wanted uh, Liz to share his vision of future housing, I think, very much. In the early 60s, Goldfinger at last got the chance to put his theories on high-rise social housing to the test, making his mark on London's skyline, most infamously at the Balfron Tower in East London and Trellick Tower in West London. Despite Erno's idealism, Trellick reached its nadir in the 1970s, when the dysfunctioning tower block was nicknamed the Tower of Terror, and would become the inspiration for J.G. Ballard's dystopian novel, High Rise. But even when this kind of architecture, labelled brutalism by some, crashed out of fashion, Goldfinger remained committed to the modernist cause. Uncompromising, still believing that cheek-by-jowl neighbourliness was possible, he refused to dilute his aesthetic to appease the mood of the moment. Even in the 20s, Erno was thinking about building high-rise accommodation. He was a socialist, a Marxist, and he was very concerned that ordinary people should have high-quality design, that they should be allowed to live in spaces that were rationally designed. And he got an opportunity in the 60s to build, first of all, Balfour Tower, and then later Trellick Tower in London, both of which are social housing originally. That's how they were conceived. Did he call himself a modernist? Is that a label that he gave to himself? I'm sure he was part of the modern movement. He would see himself as a modernist in that sense. But he always drew upon the great achievements of the past, so it's not as if it was a completely radical departure from the past. Actually, 
with his tower blocks, he's often described as brutalist. And that was one name which he didn't really accept because he felt he wasn't extreme enough in his architecture to be classified as a brutalist. What does his life tell us about whether it's better to stand out or to fit in? I think to be a successful architect, you have to be different. You have to be very forceful. And I think that individuality means that you get strong results. It's not diluted. You're getting the real thing with Erno Goldfinger. There's no sense in which he'd compromised unless he absolutely had to. Erno remained a passionate, scrapping individual until his death in 1987. He died before Trellick Tower was Grade 2 listed in 1998 and before its rehabilitation as something of a cultural icon. And he didn't live to enjoy the public admiration of Two Willow Road after it was opened by the National Trust in 1995. Nigel, what do you think we owe to Goldfinger? I think he was one of these remarkable emigre figures who came to Britain and showed us another way of seeing things, showed us a different way of doing things. He's brought ideas from the continent. He's brought ideas which are capable of changing the way we think about architecture. Whether or not you delight in the idealistic, groundbreaking design of Number 2 Willow Road, its idiosyncratic architect has given the nation a gift. On the one hand, this radical place is a temple to Erno's modernist ideals and a window on a whole different way of thinking. And on the other, it's an open-hearted, welcoming, family-minded hub. I think that Two Willow Road is an object lesson in reminding us just to take a moment before we panic about change or rush to judge. How remarkable that a tweed-wearing émigré devoted the best years of his life to trying to solve our society's housing issues and, despite the naysayers, took the very best of our Georgian inheritance and paid homage to it in what is now considered a modernist masterpiece. For more information about Two Willow Road, including opening times and dates, go to www.nationaltrust.org.uk forward slash Two Willow Road. Thank you for listening. Don't forget this is part of a 10-part series and the other programmes can be found by searching for Bethany Hughes's 10 Places on the National Trust website or subscribe through your favourite podcast app. I'm Bethany Hughes. This podcast was commissioned by Ivo Dorney and was produced by Melissa Fitzgerald. It was a Blakeway production for the National Trust. I'm Alan Power and I've been exploring the secret history of some of the nation's most breathtaking gardens in the National Trust Gardens podcast. Join me as I explore Sissinghurst Castle Garden in Kent. I'll be discovering how this haunting and world-famous garden was born out of a faded Tudor manor when a famous poet and her diplomat husband made it their home. I can't wait to share it with you, so search for National Trust Gardens on iTunes or your favourite podcast app.